but I'm an enthusiastic emoji. And you guys just have your names. How boring. Welcome back. It's episode 145 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you as we always do in the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, where we still require masks, but it's because of the eyes wide shut parties. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and co-founder of Kite and Key Media, but you probably know me from my ear-seating masterclass videos, and I am joined, as always, by the Doc Brown and Marty McFly of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Titch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu. Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. So, fellas, it's the very end of April, even here in New York City, which has heretofore been spectacularly uncooperative. It's legitimately turning into spring. We got into the 80s yesterday, ever having it in the 40s just last week. People are getting vaccinated. The world is starting to turn back on. Uh, of course, here on the East Coast, it's just in time for the cicadas because our existence is a cruel joke. But here's my opening question for you as we shuffle back towards normalcy, to use the Warren Harding word. What is the thing that you have not been able to do over the last 14 months, the COVID era, that you're most looking forward to getting back to? Uh, Richard, I'll ask you first because I genuinely believe John hasn't changed his lifestyle at all during COVID. You're right. Well, John, yeah, John may well have been a complete social uh, hermit. Uh, the thing I miss most is companionship and public performances. And so I haven't been in the law school in either NYU or Chicago. And my own. Not necessarily view, at the same time. Well, but even sequentially in different <laughs> weeks and so forth. But I had a maxim which I follow for every year that I've taught and never miss lunch unless you're absolutely required to do so. Uh, because I think that's where you recharge your intellectual batteries and develop all sorts of new ideas and connections. And Zoom is an imperfect profession. Uh, Zoom is better for teaching than it is for talking. Um, it doesn't facilitate as much. And I miss that. The other thing that I miss and my wife misses is we haven't gone to the theater, haven't gone to a conference, haven't gone to any kind of event. A Zoom is very bad. If you want to have a sing-along, the last thing you could do is have it on Zoom when only one person can talk at a time. There's no way that you could rub flesh, have a side conversation with anybody. So uh, those things are very, very sterile. And getting back to stuff on that dimension, I think, will be very, very important. Um, intellectual writing and so forth, a huge amount of that I've always done with respect to online services one way or another. So that part of my life has not changed as much. But these other things, I think, really do matter. And I think we've probably waited too long to get these things untangled. Uh, but I'm glad that the little doll in the ice is a slow melting, so I'll become a beetle, I hope, in the next month or so. I am impressed that you had that reference. John, uh, I, was Good, not really, I, I was not really joking. I, it's hard for me to imagine that you've done anything differently the last year. There was a lockdown? When did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> That's why everyone was cursing at me when I was walking around without a mask. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the real answer, right? There's nothing. There's nothing that you look forward to because you've been doing it all the whole time. Oh, so this is a, I think maybe Richard misunderstood your question because he talked about the things that were different. But the key part of the question is that you're looking forward to. 
So I'm not convinced that this world is better or worse than the previous one that we were in. Yeah, so you can't go to lunch, I suppose. Suppose. On the other hand, you don't have to have lunch with anybody. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I surrender. (laughs) Fair point. Fair point. All right. And you know, the one thing I don't miss as much as I thought I would would have been travel for business. So Richard's saying misses conferences. There's some amount of, uh, you know, absence because you don't have these in-person conferences. On the other hand, think about how much time you save by not traveling to conferences. This sort of surprises me, though, because you had really gotten down to a science pre-COVID, the exotic junket conference. I mean, I, me? I, yes, <laughs> yes, you. You're, you're, you're in Hawaii, you're in Greece, you're some exotic, you're in Taiwan. Yeah, that's I mean, true. It didn't seem like you went to a lot of conferences in Akron, is what I'm saying. Well, and nor does anybody else. But I think, in a, <laughs> you know, you're I do a letter think, from the dean of the Akron Law School, buddy. If you don't watch it, yeah, now look, I have the following kind of observation. One of the things you have to ask is what's going to change permanently because of COVID. And I think two things are going to happen. One is the sort of the quarterly, you know, the lunchtime panel, which you want to bring somebody in from London, somebody from Arizona and so forth. Those are all going to be on Zoom. Uh, There's just the time and the expense is too great and it's not worth doing that. The other thing is makeup classes and so forth. Now you have these terrible scheduling problems when you travel to try to get it and you lose 30% of your students. I think most people when they travel are going to have a situation where they will arrange that the hour or so when they teach each day, instead of teaching in the classroom, they will teach on Zoom. The students will prefer that to a makeup class where there's going to be all sorts of conflicts and it means that it's going to free everything up. And I think you'll see the Lots of kinds of incremental changes in Zoom or similar kinds of land. I don't think those things are going away. I also think remoteness and work for many places is going to change. By 89 votes, New York lost the seat in the Congress. My guess is they actually really did an accurate tally about the number of people who are commuting from, you know, Connecticut or uh, Vermont and so forth. It would be larger. We will start to see, I think, a major work at a distance movement starting to take place. Office space will start to decline. There'll be some comeback, but I don't think it will ever snap back to the status quo ante. You know, Vermont will actually pay you to do that. I think I think it's like a $10,000 tax credit for people who are working there remotely because they need the people because it's, you know, four guys in a cow. Um, <laughs> fellas, I want to start with John's favorite topic, guns. The ah. Supreme Court announced this week that it's going to take up a challenge to uh, New York's gun laws. Specifically, in New York, you cannot get a concealed carry permit unless you can show that you have a, a special need for self-defense. And that is interpreted very narrowly. And this is the way it works in a number of blue states. California does this, Massachusetts, New Jersey. About a quarter of the country's population lives in a state with a law like this one. And John, I'll begin with you on this one. Um, start us here. There's an interesting wrinkle in this case, which is that the the court has limited the question before them to whether New York violated the plaintiff's Second Amendment rights by denying them the permit. It's not necessarily the question about the validity of the law. How much should we read into that? And, and how common is it for the court to do that? I don't think it's going to make a difference. And let me tell you why. Because uh, if the court tries to wiggle out of this, and that's probably what's going on here, by saying, well, New York has a statute like California's, and it says you need a special need to get one of these permits, and the plaintiff qualified under the special need. The federal courts aren't supposed to go around and interpret state laws 
and tell the states how to reach their decisions. Right? They're supposed to limit their decisions to federal law. So they usually uh, have to accept what the state courts and the state governments say as to applying their own law. So if the state courts and the state executives say, this guy is not going to get a permit under our reading and application of New York state law, the Supreme Court's really not supposed to go in there and say, oh, no, 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 you didn't obey your own laws. You should give them the permit anyway. So if they follow the traditional, you know, this is deference to states over their own laws, if they follow traditional deference, and they shouldn't be able to get out of the constitutional question, which is still, even though starting in 2008, the Supreme Court announced that the right to bear arms is an individual right, it has refused to take any cases that explain or explore uh, the what kind of regulations are allowed to limit that right and what even what legal test is to be applied. Is it reasonable regulations or do they have to be compelling, serve a compelling government interest if they mar- narrowly tailored? Nobody knows. In fact, uh, Justice Thomas said in one of these Second Amendment cases a few years ago that uh, you know the Second Amendment had become a second class right because the court refused, steadfastly has refused for 13 years to explain what it means. Yes. I mean, Heller was the last decision. Then there was McDonald, but McDonald didn't go into the substantive standard. It only said probably incorrectly that the second amendment binds the state, even though it's a federalism provision designed to protect the states from the federal government. But I think at this particular point, the question of what Heller is rightly or wrongly decided, I thought it was wrongly decided, um, is under the bridge. And now the question is, what kinds of scrutiny can you give and what sort of protection? I say in a sentence that uh, the one takeaway from Heller is that we no longer have a rational basis test for justifying the kind of state regulation. So simply saying that you're designed to prevent various kinds of bloodshed with guns is not going to do it. It's some form of intermediate scrutiny. And if it turns out that it's impossible to meet that particular standard, uh, what they're going to have to show is the state that keeping guns out of the hands of licensed people who know what they're going to do it is going to contribute to the health. I think the stronger argument is that concealed carry laws, at least when sensibly done, actually reduce, don't increase the number of crimes. There have been a lot of studies both ways on this question. So I think they're actually going to strike down the New York law and the ambiguity will become what kind of law can they put in its place. I think that's going to be open. Uh, But if they're taking this I don't know exactly what the vote will be. I don't know whether they're five or six conservatives and so forth, but I do think it's likely that the statute was taken because the statute will be shut down. That question about whether there are five or six, that actually takes us to where I wanted to go next. Uh, John, our listeners might remember that there was a previous challenge uh, to a New York gun law, but the the underlying law got repealed. So it got swept aside as, as moot. After that, though, the court had, I think it was last year, it was 10 gun rights cases that they denied review on. Now they take this one up. There is speculation out there that they were essentially, they were waiting for a Justice Barrett, that nobody trusts the Chief Justice on this. Do do you buy that? Yeah, I do. I think that if you were uh, voting strategically on the court in terms of what cases to grant, um, you would want to, you know, make sure you had the maximum number of votes on your side. Um, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, you know, tall from all appearances, seems to be very much in the mold of Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia provides the fifth vote in both of those Second Amendment cases, as uh, Richard explained. And 
you know, I, I think I think conservatives on the court and uh, you know, Washington ought to be worried about Chief Justice Roberts. I think he um, is wary of taking on issues, especially where there's a lot of liberal threats to retaliate against the court, which is going on right now with these uh, with this talk about court packing or expansion of the lower federal courts. Um, and I, so I, I could see people on the court being worried that Chief Justice Roberts, left to his own devices, would uh, try to find some way to escape these questions again. And so I actually think it's not Amy Coney Barrett who will be the focus of attention. Um, I think she and Justice Gorsuch are going to join Justice Thomas and Justice Alito in trying to, you know, breathe new life into the Second Amendment. And it's going to be Justice Kavanaugh, who in some cases has gone along with the Chief Justice, uh, who I think people are going to, I think people are going to try to pressure, they're going to make appeals to him, they're going to try to craft opinions for, you know, that try to give him a, a way out of finding any clear bright lines in the Second Amendment area that would rule out more gun control. Look, I think, uh, to put it another way, it's wrong to think of this as a 6-3 majority, as if there's no difference amongst the 6. Um, I think it's pretty clear that although Justice Gorsuch has a certain maverick quality about him with Bostock and so forth, that he, Alito, and Thomas are of a pretty much deeper dye than Kavanaugh, Barrett, or Roberts. I think amongst them there are differences, but uh, the three who are on the left with respect to all major issues, I think will vote as a monolith, even though on other issues they will not. But I think the three in the middle are a little bit more wayward, a little bit more independent-minded. So I don't regard this as a kind of a clear 6-3 inevitability type of distinction. I think the Democrats are saying that because they believe that will help them pack the court where they could then sort of add on four more measures and not divide them 50-50 between the parties, but fill all the seats with people whom they think are fine to get a transient 7-6 majority. I think that's a horrible kind of idea in short form. I think the actual reality of this situation is that we've never had a solid kind of hardcore conservative majority in this Supreme Court. When Kennedy was there, Roberts is there and so forth, they were always uh, a little bit wayward in their sort of sentiments. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. I, I'm not that hard of line guy myself. I'm much more of a libertarian, for example, than many of the justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, but I, I think that there's going to be uncertainty. If I were a betting person, Person, however, I would rather have it 6-3 than 5-3. So I think that what John said, that the delay was probably to some extent strategic is too. Uh, but, you know, we still have to wait to see what Judge Barrett is actually going to do uh, now that she's a justice. Um, people tend to change their views, have a different view as to what their role is. This is all somewhat uncertain. So I think it's going to be adventurous times going forward. I don't, I, I don't want to be competent enough to pick which way it would go. My own view view is, as I said, I don't think that the Second Amendment essentially is a substantive provision. I think it's a federalism provision. That battle has been lost. And I think, therefore, the battle is what do we mean by intermediate scrutiny, uh, which was the point I made originally. One more thing while we're on this uh, that I'd like you guys to weigh in on. John, in in what is likely to be your new home state of Montana, the <laughs> Republican governor, Greg Gianforte, has uh, signed a law that prohibits state and local law enforcement from enforcing federal restrictions on firearms, ammunition, etc. They're setting themselves up as a Second Amendment 
sanctuary state. So Arizona has done something similar to this. I believe they're uh, underway in Arkansas on something similar. Utah and Texas are talking about it. And John, Republicans tended not to like this when the subject was illegal immigration. Uh, How should we think about it when the topic is guns? I I was... uh okay with it when California did it with immigration. And I think it's, I'm okay with it when Montana does it with gun rights. And the, it's almost compelled by the constitution. According to these cases called the anti-commandeering cases, uh, federal officials are not allowed to enforce state law and state officials are not allowed to enforce federal law. So federal firearms laws are actually required to be enforced only by federal agents. In fact, are you sure, John? Yeah, the first, the case, the very first case in the anti, the second case in the anti-commandeering area was this case called Prince, which actually was about handgun regulation. And the court said that the federal government could not make states carry out the background checks for federal handguns. But if the states wanted to join on, I thought they were perfectly free to do so. If they have their own laws, you know, so they can, they can do the exact same thing that the federal government does. Or do it under the federal law if they cooperate. See, that's the thing I think the court does not allow. Well, I think my guess is that's wrong, but um, uh, uh, tomorrow's another day. We'll find out. <laughs> but I don't think, for example, I don't think a state officer can go up to Troy. Well, Troy's an exception always, but <laughs> I don't think a state officer could go up to Troy and say, I am arresting you for violating federal law. And this is, this is what, this is important. Which one? Part. I mean, yeah, there's plenty. Yeah. The, it's like, yeah, it's like, I'm, I can't, I'm going to arrest Troy. And then he pulls out a scroll, with hundreds <laughs> of offenses, but it's, you know, Justice Scalia said in that opinion, it was because uh, the president has to be able to you know, ensure uniform interpretation and application of federal law. So state officers start, start going out and enforcing it. The president can't control them. He can't fire, he or she can't fire them. He or she can't order them to do one thing or another. So that's a secondary holding of that Prince case, which I think uh, becomes more important here. Yes, but yeah. I, I take it. I know you think it's wrong. But no, no. I, look, I, I have to say um, on the arrest side, I don't think that was actually one of the issues addressed in Prince as I remember it. Uh, but if the issue is to whether or not a state government could turn over to the federal government information about the release of somebody from its prison system, I yes. think you don't have to have yeah, uh, only right. federal person do that. I think that's that, right. the, that cooperation is there. Yeah, um, there's an exception in the case that says things like sharing information is not covered by this anti-commandeering. So that's the one area where I think states do have this flexibility. California on immigration chose not to give information out to the federal government about aliens. And Montana, I'm not sure what information exactly is necessary now, but they could, you know, they could say, well, we found people with guns that were not in compliance with federal law. Well, we don't have to tell the federal government that. I, I think that's perfectly constitutional. Um. There's a supremacy argument which would cut the other way on that. But I think there's certainly a very respectable argument that the anti-commandeering statute would prevent coercion. But I don't think the anti-commandeering argument, by definition, would present uh, cooperation from taking place. Uh, There's so much exchange of information right now between federal and state officials with respect to various crimes that may have both federal and state implications that you would completely upset law enforcement if you prevented that degree of cooperation. But I do think, in effect, that uh, 
resistance to some of the federal norms is likely to happen, uh, particularly if it turns out that they become ever more savage. And one of the things that we have to worry about is the extent that the Biden administration will pass some extremely draconic, draconian laws and that that will preempt a very strong state reaction. I mean, one of the things about the president, he seems to forget about the fact that he doesn't have a mandate. Um, the Democrats could barely hold on to the Senate. Uh, his victory was not overwhelming by any stretch of the imagination, and the Democrats lost seats in the House. And I think on some of these issues, popular sentiment is pretty much against them. Uh, so a lot of this is going to depend upon how successful the Bidens are in pushing their administration forward. They're moving so fast on so many different fronts. I don't think they'll be able to keep the coalition together indefinitely. All right. I want to move you guys on to something else. Um, the Supreme Court just heard oral arguments in this case out of California. It's a suit that was brought by Americans for Prosperity and the Thomas More Law Center, challenging a requirement under state law there that uh, charities and nonprofits have to disclose the names and addresses of their biggest donors to the state attorney general's office. California's theory of this is that they need that information to help them police fraud in the nonprofit world. These groups argue that it's an infringement on their First Amendment rights and free association. And Richard, it might be good actually to start with some remedial instruction here if we're going to understand this case in its proper context. The phrase freedom of association does not actually appear in the First Amendment. So can you trace the, the legal genealogy for us? Sure. I mean, the, when you're dealing with constitutional interpretation, what you do is you start with a core principle, and then there are all sorts of supplemental arguments that are give it life. And so if you say Congress can pass no law abridging the freedom of speech, you cannot conclude from that that it could ban anybody from speaking. So somebody has to speak. And then somebody decides they want to speak, and they have to buy glue. Uh, can you say you're allowed to speak, but you're not allowed to buy glue, you're not allowed to buy advertisements or anything else? No, you can't say that. Uh, so that means, in effect, that what you're allowed to do is to enter into ordinary market transactions that will facilitate the effectiveness of speech. One of the ways in which you do this is you associate with other people of like-minded preferences, pool your resources, and decide to hire common spokesmen. And under the First Amendment, that looks like freedom of speech, only now you've got an association pulling behind it. What happened is that methodology, which I think is pretty powerful, and that was uh, used in, in, in the case that we had with the um, a corporate speech that Scalia did, um, Citizen. What, what was the name of the case? <laughs> it just slips my mind. Citizens, um, United. Citizens United. Citizens United case was there, but there was an earlier case called the. Uh, case of NAACP against Alabama, which is generally regarded as a landmark of civil rights laws. Uh, the NAACP had a membership list, and the Attorney General of Alabama wanted to get the names on that list. And it turned out that Justice Harlan said, you're not allowed to do this because of the threat of retaliation. This shows you how much the worm has turned, because now when you're 63 or 62 years later, all of a sudden, it's the liberal guys want to get this kind of information. And what they can do is they could use it for any particular purpose. Uh, people are going to be very skeptical that you could partition that information when it gets into the hand of the attorney general. There's already been, in this particular case, several leaks of one form or another. And the fear of retaliation, uh, which was witnessed, for example, some of the battles over Proposition 8 in California and so forth are real. So I think that if you had asked this question 30 years ago, people might have said, oh, it's okay. Anti-fraud is great. But I think in this particular case, the connection between the control of fraud on the one hand and the release of these names 
games is very bad. A simple situation is you don't have to get this stuff. Abstractly, you can file a subpoena in order to get these documents upon proof of some kind of evidence. And so rather than having a wholesale turnover of this information, what we do is we require the state to go through the ordinary criminal prospect. I think, in effect, there's a very strong claim, and I would predict it could even be unanimous, as far as I can tell, that the state will not be allowed to do this, because if California could do it with respect to, uh, it turns out, conservatives, then maybe Texas could do it with respect to progressives. And what you do is you start getting yourself moving in the direction of a police state. So I think it's a welcome addition that this came forward and so forth. And I hope that essentially they basically say that you have to have some kind of cause and some kind of um, process before you can do this. You cannot have a dragnet. John, as Richard indicated, there was in the oral arguments a sense that this argument was seemed to be winning over a lot of the justices, but you could sense some uneasiness from Justice Breyer in this case, worried about the implications for campaign finance laws. Because Breyer asked a question to the effect of, what happens if you guys win and we've established that the donor's right to privacy here is more important than the transparency or the public scrutiny that might impose, I don't know, some discipline on them. And he, he asked, how would that not be equally the case, if not more so, for people who want to donate to political campaigns who arguably have just as much interest in staying anonymous? What, what's your response to that? Oh, I, I actually think Breyer has put his finger on uh, a tension or a problem with campaign finance law. Uh, you know, this part of the campaign finance laws has been upheld, I think, at least since Buckley versus Vallejo. And that's the idea that you have to disclose campaign contributions. A lot of people, I think even uh, conservatives have agreed on that. They don't, conservatives generally seem to dislike the limitations on the amount you can give. But they've often said in the political debates that disclosing the names and how much you give should be fine. But I, I, I actually think he's right in this respect that the logic of NAACP versus Alabama and the follow-on cases raises a problem for forced disclosure of campaign contributions. I, I, you, know, you look at the California cases, you know, there was a lot of this uh, retaliation against people who donated money to the campaign on Proposition 8, which was the one about gay marriage. And you saw uh, people who gave money were fired from their jobs or there were small businesses were boycotted. Um, that kind of disclosure, uh, you know, seems to be, I don't, I don't really see the strong difference between that kind of disclosure and the kind that's required under federal law for campaign contributions. So I, I think Justice Breyer's right. And, and, but I, I should be clear, I, I don't agree with Breyer that it should be constitutional to force people to disclose how much they're giving to what campaigns. But that seems to be a you know, strong consensus position amongst a lot of scholars. I think all of this is going to start to unravel. Um, when this was passed in 1976 and so forth, what you did is you had the post-Watergate stuff influencing the way people have gone. Now I think there's a very different political climate. We don't see government as being virtuous. We see a highly polarized economy, no consensus behind all of this stuff, and absolutely manifest sources of danger that comes from this. Um, it means, seems to me it would be absolutely perilous to do this. You're going to do it only for left-wing organizations. You can do it for right-wing organizations. You're going to do it for both. Which ones? What kinds of disclosures you have? What sort of protections you're going to give to individuals? I believe, in effect, that all the stuff on the campaign finance laws 
are going to be changed. The appropriate response is give as much money as you want in private, okay? And then if somebody asks you if you receive money from donors, uh, you can deny that you've done it and get caught in a lie, or you can say we've done it, but I don't want to reveal the names of these particular individuals. You can be sure, essentially, that they're people who agree with me. Uh, I think that there's still going to be laws against bribery, which can be done in these particular cases. And note that bribery is not an issue. Uh, when you are dealing with charitable organizations and contributions to them. It is an issue when you're dealing with campaign finances, where there's always a thought of a pro-po between you and the person whom you're supporting. So I think on, on a little bit of reflection, there's even grounds to distinguish between the two things. I will say that when Buckley and Vallejo came down, and the question was whether or not you could prohibit contributions as you could, but couldn't prohibit self-expenditures, uh, most people sort of scratched their heads thinking, that the solution that had come up with at that time was unstable. My guess is that uneasiness will only compounded itself. So I don't even think that the campaign finance in cases like Buckley and Vahaleo are safe at this particular point in time. It may be that Justice Breyer is saying that both of them are going to go down, and it may well be that that's the better thing to do. All right. Another case that just underwent oral argument before the Supreme Court, another First Amendment case, this one out of Pennsylvania where the issue was a, a high school cheerleader on Snapchat. She was upset that she had got stuck with another year on the JV squad instead of the varsity squad. I mean, been there, obviously. So she goes on Snapchat, posts a snap in which she's got her middle finger up, and she captions it, expletive deleted here, F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything. <laughs> which, you know, again, same. I've been there. But one of her squad mates... Uh, takes a screenshot, shows it to a coach, and this girl gets suspended from the cheer squad for a year. Now, she and her family sued on the grounds that this was a First Amendment violation. This is her own private social media on her own time. But, John, the school says it's an artificial distinction to imagine that things that happen off campus, especially in the social media environment, aren't going to affect the disciplinary environment on campus. A lot of people argue that the, the schools can't police cyberbullying if everything that happens virtually is beyond their reach. How would you parse this case? It's interesting. This, is, this poses a real um, conflict for conservatives versus libertarians. You know, the conservatives say, we've got to do anything we can to protect cheerleading in this country. But seriously, the conservatives <laughs> usually actually uh, defer. And I'm, look, I'm from Pennsylvania. I know how important cheerleading and football are so uh the but the conservatives generally uh defer uh, to school administrators although i think with the rise of wokeism on campus and schools they are reconsidering that view even now whereas it's more the libertarians who wanted to expand the free speech rights of students and administrators but i think the obvious way to resolve that in this case is simply for the court to say the school, we, you know, to, to rather we defer to school administrators or not to maintain discipline and therefore uh, only recognize limited speech rights for uh, students. That has nothing. The school ministry, school ministers have no power over students when they're off campus. In fact, the famous line from this case, I think it's called T, uh, TLO or TO, the famous case about um, student speech rights says something like uh, students do not shed their First Amendment rights when they enter the schoolhouse gate. That uh, was tinker. The assumption being that before you crossed onto school property, you had full First Amendment rights. And so I don't see how a school administrator 
gets any power over a student who's exercising their First Amendment rights off uh, campus. Now, some people might say, well, because of Zoom and because of this sort of disaggregated, decentralized educational system we've had for the last year because of the pandemic, and maybe we're going to have more online instruction going forward. Is there really a physical place uh, that is uh, the school anymore? Don't school administrators have this authority that just goes with the status of the student rather than lo location? Even if that's plausibly true, the student here is not engaged in any school activities. You know, they're not doing anything with related to school. They're at the frozen yogurt and shop. And I think all frozen yogurt shops should be for, uh, for cursing and yelling and all kinds of denial <laughs> conduct. So I, I think that's got to be the, I think that's got to be the right answer here. I, I'd be su really surprised if the court uh, uh, went the other way. I think it's going to be closer than that, actually. Uh, the case John was referring to was a case called Tinker. And this was, I guess, in the 70s. And what you did is you have somebody who wears a button for against the Vietnam War. And they want to walk into the school and put it on. And they say, you don't surrender your First Amendment rights. But then in the usual balancing mode, they said, but given the fact and the needs of having school discipline in order, uh, we can put restrictions on you that you might not have in the other cases. So if you're on a public speech, you could certainly give all sorts of drowsing cheers one way or another for your cause. You go into a classroom or in the hall, they may have to let you wear the button, but they don't have to let you engage in the cheer-liking activity. And so it's a balancing test. In this particular case, um, I think there's the following difference, which is the, uh, the conversation off the campus was about the activities that went on onside the campus, which was not the case in Tinker. And it turns out that you could make a respectable argument that you start cursing things out in this particular way and it gets known to large numbers of people. Uh, what you could do is you could suspend the student for being essentially um, disrespectful of superiors. And so put the question this way, if you put this on campus and she said the same thing and she said it live or she put it on Snapchat and everybody saw it. If she were on the campus, I think that they probably could give some kind of discipline. Removing her from campus when this is the subject matter and it gets back to campus by other means, none of which are particularly extraordinary. I think it's respectful to say that you could probably have the balancing test that you had in Tinker. Uh, this activity strikes me as a more closely related to the school and probably a bit more egregious. Uh, so my guess is they will adopt the Tinker framework, and then you'll probably see a lot of split amongst the justices as to which way the balancing test will start to go. Uh, but I would think, given the circumstances of this case, um, uh, I, I don't think it's a particularly ideological division, but I think there's at least a respectable chance uh, that they will treat this as related to educational activities, given the subject matter uh, of the conversation and the way in which the information was disseminated, and that I think they will apply some degree of First Amendment scrutiny. They won't just treat it as your own business because it was unrelated to school affairs. And I think then it's going to be pretty close. I'm, I'm not going to predict the votes, but I would not be surprised if, in fact, the school cheerleader lost. John, the Washington Post had an interesting note in its write-up of this story, which is that the, the Roberts Court has tended to take a very permissive approach to what speech receives First Amendment privileges, whether it was the fundamentalist Christians protesting military funerals, whether it was protecting lying about military service in the Stolen Valor case, whether it was selling dogfighting videos. And it also noted I hadn't seen this quote before, but Chief Justice Roberts has called himself, this is the quote, probably the most aggressive defender of the First Amendment on the court, close quote. So 
first of all, I wonder if you agree with Robert's self-characterization there. But second, this does open up an interesting line of inquiry, which, as you mentioned earlier, conservatives have gotten to the point where they just kind of reflexively roll their eyes at the chief justice because they always assume that he's playing some too clever political game and he's not going to stick his neck out for anything. It is easy for people to get swallowed by caricatures like that. Are there areas where the right doesn't give Roberts enough credit where he really is consistently valuable? I saw that quote of his. Uh, I I was surprised. It wasn't my first thought. It's not whether Roberts himself is an aggressive defender of free speech or not. It's that this is one of those issues where the conservatives on liberal and liberals on the court happen to agree. And so the court itself has been very aggressive uh, in expanding the reach of free speech for maybe since the Rehnquist court, really. It's been a long-term thing. It's not really um, solely because of Roberts. The second thing is, and we're going to see this tested, I think, in the affirmative action cases that are coming down the line, the Harvard University case, and then the, I think behind that are going to be the school, you know, the public K through 12 schools and racial assignments. Uh, but I think what you're going to see, I think this is the area I think where Roberts has probably been most conservative has been on issues of race. I'll point to two cases. Uh, he wrote the opinion in Shelby County, which ended uh, the sort of strict uh, limits on uh, political on pol- uh, state governments and politics arising under the 1964 uh, Voting Rights Act. He lifted um, some of re- really the, the toughest regulations of the southern states because of race. In that case, it was, it was sort of widely criticized by the left for that. And then the other area I would point out would be um, he's voted, I think, fairly consistently. I can't even think of a vote going the other way in favor of striking down race-based classifications. He wrote an important opinion uh, about basically school assignments and busing and so on in Seattle, where he the language he used was the way to get beyond, to ra- beyond race is to stop using race. I think that's sort of maybe his the best line he's ever written. Um, he's also the one other area in addition to race. I think he's been very, uh, quite strong in general has been the separation of powers. He's, uh, supported efforts to expand the president's removal power and to subject more and more of the administrative state, uh, to control by the president. So the, 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 the most important one was mm-hmm. removing the, for the protections for the head of the consumer finance protection board, uh, he'd also done that a few years before in a funny little body of that regulated accounting. Um, so I think if, you know, if, if we we're going to say what would be his legacy, suppose Chief Justice Roberts decided to retire next year. I think those would be the two areas where conservatives would be most happy with, despite their complaints about him involving things like federalism and Obamacare or his strange reading of presidential power, I think, in the DACA case last year yeah. or his you know, shifting in response, it seems, to political uh, crit- uh, criticism and uh, hemming and hawing and trying to fight against drawing clear, bright line principles on a lot of other constitutional issues. Look, um, I'm going to put this thing in a slightly different fashion. I think it's a mistake in trying to make a normative evaluation of Supreme Court justices and their First Amendment jurisprudence to say that the greater the extension they give to the First Amendment, the more learned and wise they are. And so take the stolen valor case. And this was a situation in which you had somebody constantly parading medals of honor and things like that, which he had not earned. And it does create serious dislocations in the terms of way in which private people interact with them. Uh, 
fundraising abilities, public appearances and speeches and so forth. And no individual has a really strong incentive to try to stop it. And the act was trying to basically put sanctions on them that could be administered by the government uh, so as to strip him of those particular options. Um, I think, in effect, an anti-fraud measure of that degree of specificity is actually a good thing rather than a bad thing. And I think that private remedies are inadequate. Public intervention is perfectly appropriate. So in that case, if he was, on, I think, on the wrong side, uh, there was a case called Carpenter, and the question is whether or not you could track people um, by using various kinds of devices. He said no. It's clear that you can track them by watching them. Uh, why not put something on the car so that you could do it more efficiently and well with less chance of prevarication and abuse? I think that you should allow that to do so, but in order to actually open up the messages that you get when you track somebody to a given location, at that point, you have to have a warrant based upon probable cause, whereas I think the first thing could be done on reasonable suspicion. So it's I, not necessary that you can be a civil libertarian and still think they're making mistakes on the way in which this goes. And on, on the free speech cases, I think in general, uh, it really tends to go every which way. Just a few minutes ago, I basically was strongly in favor of saying that people conceal their contributions to various organizations that are involved in advocacy work. Uh, so I think that what you really want is somebody who's aware of the backdrop of framework, which is uh, reasonable regulations designed to control against force and fraud are going to be allowed uh, witch hunting kind of operations to get information without any clear information or not. And uh, once you see the way that the line breaks, then you do it. In terms of Justice Roberts on his general jurisprudence, I will make only one comment, uh, which is uh, I think it's very important to recognize that he was a Supreme Court advocate before he went on the United States Supreme Court. And what happens with advocates is they tend to take relatively tailored, relatively narrow positions in any given case because they're always worried about whether they're not going to be able to get the next case. And so I tend to think of the Roberts jurisprudence as being uh, highly idiosyncratic in particular cases. I don't think of him as a man of having a comprehensive, a global sort of theory. What that means is when you get people like John or me or somebody on the left who have a global theory, somebody like Justice Roberts, who's going to yo-yo over the place, is going to offend at least some group of people, probably every group of people some of the time. And so he's going to become the pinata uh, for both the left and the right. Um, I think he's entitled to have his own jurisprudential philosophy, and he's certainly not going to listen to me say that he ought to change it. But, you know, I've been very critical of some of his views. I think that his attack on Lochner and treating it as always like Korematsu and really horrible cases like Plessy and Ferguson is just plain wrong. Uh, the real question in a case like Lochner is can the legislature pass this uh, statute or can the court abide it? Nobody would say if the legislature repealed the minimum wage law, that one of the great sins of our time. But if the legislature, as it did in cases imposed segregation or racial imprisonments of one kind or another, uh, you're not going to say, oh, this is okay because it's not judicial supremacy. You're going to say it's bad because the substance turns out to be bad. And I thought his Obergefell dissent was actually particularly poor on that issue. Uh, so I'm like everybody else. I give him high marks on some cases and low marks on others. All right. I have to get you guys to this one because uh, Peter Robinson wrote us in anticipatory ecstasy when this happened. So the Supreme Court had to return to the issue of whether Donald Trump was allowed to block people from his Twitter account when he was president or whether that was a First Amendment violation. Okay, so that issue mooted, obviously, with Trump both out of office and off of Twitter. No big deal. What was a big deal? Justice Thomas, in his concurrence, 
taking on some of the broader issues around free speech and tech. This is how that concurrence ends. This is the last paragraph of it. The Second Circuit feared that then-President Trump cut off speech by using the features that Twitter made available to him. But if the aim is to ensure that speech is not smothered, then the more glaring concern must perforce be the dominant digital platforms themselves. As Twitter made clear, the right to cut off speech lies most powerfully in the hands of private digital platforms. The extent to which that power matters for purposes of the First Amendment and the extent to which that power could lawfully be modified raise interesting and important questions. This petition, unfortunately, affords us no opportunity to confront them. Close quote. This is at the end of a long analysis in which he suggests that there may be legitimate grounds to treat social media networks as either common carriers or public accommodations. Richard, you have been inching towards something along those lines lately. What do you make of Justice Thomas? Well, I mean, he sounds like he's in the same church that I'm in. I'm not sure whether (laughs) we're in the same pew, uh, because I think that if you actually push this very hard, uh, there's an underlying deep substantive difference, and I'm going to try to tell you the way in which I think it ought to be resolved. This is a variation on the theme that I wrote in the Wall Street Journal in that interview with Tunku Baradajan uh, back, I guess it was in January. Uh, the problem here is a common carrier essentially is somebody who has a service monopoly in a particular area, and the general view is that you have to take on all of these people and serve them, um, and you have to serve them on reasonable terms. The original historical debates were over matters of price and quality of service. Uh, Now, price is not an issue. It's just access to the network, which is there. But the same kind of principle can apply. The argument on the other side is, but, you know, do these guys have a durable monopoly? And the argument is if they have free entry that can alter these type of situations, then it's a mistake to treat them as though they are a common carrier because these rivals will come up. Well, I think the correct answer then turns on the following issue. Just how durable is the control that these various companies have? And so my new thinking on this is a very simple variation on the old theme. Right now, if you start looking at the major powers, they certainly have the kinds of concentrations. So I think at this particular point, they should be under a lot of pressure to explain why they have cause to remove various books from various things. They certainly can't do that with respect to Justice Thomas's documentaries. I don't think they could do it with respect to Ryan Anderson's book on uh, transgender rights and all the rest of that stuff. I don't think it gets close to offensive and obscene kind of behavior. And what happens is once the new entrants become established, then it turns out they can turn themselves off. So instead of making a once-and-for-all prediction as to what's going to happen, once-and-for-all judgment, when the prediction is very weak, what you do is you say, so long as they do have the kinds of concentrations that attract common carrier liability, we should treat them like that. And then when the market changes, we should, in light of the new entry, change the particular result. So I think, in effect, these are going to be pretty powerful cases. And to some extent, if you're trying to figure out how you deal with this stuff, uh, antitrust collective refusal to deal kind of language is there. What makes it even more intriguing is we don't know how liberally you're going to construe the notion of horizontal cooperation on an implicit basis amongst most of these guys, but it turns out that they all seem to have the same general politics. They're inclined to ban the same kinds of books. So somebody would want to say that, look, if you really look at the back of all this stuff, it's not just one guy with 30% of the market doing something. It's three guys with 80% of the time doing things, and their parallel conduct gives rise to greater suspicion. This is obviously controversial. We're a long way from a final uh, resolve 
on this particular question, but I do think that the sentiment on this issue is growing. It's ironic that both the left and the right uh, want to attack these guys for whom they start to remove. I'm very much against the removal of anything from the system on the grounds that it, quote, unquote, contains disinformation. Uh, most of the people who say that are basically attacking positions that I believe. I think that you have to limit cause in these arguments, not for differences of opinion on a COVID vaccine or on global warming, uh, but really malicious slanders about individuals. And none of the books that have been removed come close to that standard. John, you're a little bit more skeptical of a regulatory approach to these companies, are you not? Troy, thank you. It's been 10 years we've done this show. You finally found something where I am more libertarian than Richard. It took you long enough, long enough. So I, um, I'm not, I, let me say one thing. I think if I were to have to predict just objectively, not my own personal view, I bet Richard's view will prevail that we will end up uh, thinking of these things like common carriers. And that's also, I think, what Justice Thomas suggests in his opinion. Um, but personally, I'm not sure these are common carriers. Uh, I'm not sure analogizing to the past of railroads or airplanes or even hotels is really the right way to think about these new digital uh, technologies. And you know, the starting point for me is that they are private companies and they are private property. And so I would just say the presumption should be that whether I agree with them or not, you know, Facebook and YouTube have the right to, and Twitter have the right to allow on or kick off anybody they like, just like you and I have that right when we, you know, have our own uh, front yards. We don't have to allow some kook coming on or Donald Trump to come onto our front yards and start saying whatever they want if we could disagree with them. So, and then the second caution I have is, uh, you know, the whole common carrier idea is built on, on this idea. There's two grounds of it. One is, right, that they have some kind of monopoly power. Uh, and some, often it's connected with a monopoly power granted by the government. You know, it's not common for like utilities, for example. Where the other one is like, uh, which I think has always been a mistake, was this idea that common carriers were common carriers because they somehow serve the public interest. Um, and that's sort of the more modern justification for saying things like hotels are common carriers or uh, I've always been suspicious of that because the definition of public interest is always going to be in the eye of the beholder and can be stretched enormously by people in the government to include whatever they want. So for me, it seems to me we're so early in the digital revolution. I, I'm not confident that we're going to come up with the right rules. And if you make mistakes and come up with the wrong rules, you could have the effect of suppressing the you know, the innovation that has been such a central feature of the American economy for the last de the last few decades, I wouldn't tamper around with any of these rules quite yet until we really see uh, whether any of these companies are going to be around in 10 years. Well, um, let me answer a couple of points on this. One, it has always been immaterial that these are private companies that run these operations. Uh, the argument is, do they have a kind of monopoly? The risk is that it's another monopolist regulating them. That is the government. And so you developed a huge body of law, at least in the rate regulation cases, uh, which start to say that if you push too hard and they can't recover their fixed cost plus a reasonable profit over the life of the business, the rates have to be relaxed as opposed to being too relaxed and they start getting a monopoly profits. I think the rating issues are not going to be 
carried over to this issue unless there. The other point, I think, just to make it as a matter of history, the very first of these cases, um, a case called Alnus and Ignan, um, essentially said that you can apply the common carry to people who have a natural monopoly, to people who have a legal monopoly, that is one protected by the government. So if there's a cove, which is the only place along the British coast that you could land your boats, and in that cove you could only have room for one uh, unloading dock and so forth, that would be a monopolist, even though there was no particular government grant to support it. Uh, the third thing that I want to say is I'm tentative, and I tried to put the proposal in such a form uh, that what you do is you constantly review whether you give them this kind of common carrier status so that if, in fact, the new entrance erodes the business, then you take all this stuff away. And the, a lot of the debates that I've had, and I've had many of them since I published this thing in the Wall Street Journal with Tunku, it's the question of what's the durability of these kinds of arrangements. And we don't know. So rather than making a once and for all judgment today, you just watch it. And if you get below a certain kind of benchmark, say below 30% of market power, it's fine. If Parler comes back on after it's been rudely kicked off, that might change the way of the occasion. So I am out of the business now of saying once a common carrier, always a common carrier. Uh, And that's the modification that I think makes it a little bit more palatable to do this because you're doing it in small temporal chunks rather than in a once and for all decision. Okay, one last topic for you guys, because we talked about this on a previous show that was, alas, lost to history due to some technical problems. The House has now passed legislation to make Washington, D.C. a state. doesn't look like it will get out of the Senate, but there's an interesting question if it did, which is that the way the Democrats are trying to skin this cat is to retain a federal district that would just basically be the mall. But the rest of what is currently the district would be turned into this this new state. By the way, it'd be called Washington Douglas Commonwealth at that point. Problem here is that the 23rd Amendment gives D.C. three votes in the Electoral College, and the Democrats are saying they want to transfer those over to this new state by statute without doing anything with the Constitution. So this is a mess. Compounding that, uh, as a piece of New York Magazine pointed out, if this happened, pretty much the only residential property left in the Capitol District would be the White House, which leaves you with the prospect that the president of the United States would have three electoral votes all to himself. Uh, John, help us make sense of this. Is there two points? Is there a good justification for D.C. to be a state? And is there a plausible legal or constitutional path to get there? So the latter question is maybe the easier one, which is, uh, so originally, the district was much larger, and so the uh, federal government didn't need it all. This has got to be the last time the federal government gave stuff back <laughs> without being asked to. But it, uh, I can think the phrase, there was a retrocession. It returned some of the land that had been given to it to form the district. So suppose, uh, and that's what this proposal you mentioned seeks to do. Suppose you just made the district smaller, and then you said, well, what is this excess land going to be? Well, you could give it back to Virginia or Maryland, but instead, could you make it a new state? And the Constitution seems silent about it. So it seems to me that's the best path to make D.C. a state. Now, people who uh, criticize this idea say, well, the um, it runs against the constitutional principle going on here, which was that D.C. was never to become a state because the founders and they were quite clear about this. The founders worried about uh, if the capital were located actually within a state, that state would uh, have uh, un, you know, un, uh, unwarranted power potentially over the federal government and its operations. So that's why you need a sort of independent geographic area. 
that was specifically never going to be a state. And so they would say it's not really the spirit of the Constitution to allow uh, D.C. to just be drawn extremely narrowly and then really create a state that would surround it and then really be uh, really have sort of effectively that kind of power over the federal government that the founders uh, worried about. The problem for that argument is that uh, it really depends on like a sort of spirit or purpose of the Constitution. Uh, it's hard to find that kind of prohibition in the actual language of the text anywhere. And the founders, of course, they could have prohibited it, but they did not specifically do so. So I actually think there is a, a constitutional route to creating it yet another state. Now, the thing I think the real check on it and the check historically on sort of abuse of the power to make new states was always a political one. So I always think, I would love to see this, that, you know, if Democrats are seeking to expand their power in the Senate by adding D.C. or Puerto Rico states, well, when Republicans are in charge, they can make a whole lot of states because the other provision of the Constitution that hasn't been mentioned is that you are allowed to uh, create new states states. out of old states. Yeah, it's kind of like Alien Baby in the Alien movies. (laughs) <laughs> You're the only guy making that analogy, John. Yeah. Why people okay. tune in? The, 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 the classier one is, uh, you know, uh, Minerva, you know, coming out of the head of Zeus. See but- that? You're you're a man for all seasons. <laughs> so that's right. Why, he's he's mythological Texas- and is significant. <laughs> so um, Texas is a big territory, right? Why? Why doesn't Texas just say, "Well, we're going to divide ourselves into eight states now, and each of us are going to get two, Right? All you need is. Uh, Congress to pass a law and the, the existing state to give its consent. So you could, you know, right, if you want to play this game, then Republicans say, well, we're going to match you or even exceed you step by step and make more new states until this stops. And we do it by uh, bipartisan consensus. Um, the difficulty with John's nightmarish scenario is you can't unravel the new states once you've made them. And the prize of two new seats in the Senate will make it a really dangerous situation. Uh, but I would like to stress under these circumstances is a long disregarded notion, kind of constitutional comedy, C-O-M-I-T-I. And what you mean by that is there's certain kinds of dominant constitutional norms that are not enshrined in the Constitution as such, but which essentially make it possible to keep the union durable. And one of those would be that we don't create new states out of old states because it's going to essentially give sequential retaliation as the parties start to change, and that it will by and large magnify the power of small states in the Senate in a way that we don't want. Another one of these norms, I think, is we keep the Supreme Court at nine justices. We don't want to go up to 13 or down to seven uh, because we have a stable system. Uh, Both of these norms were fully respected for a very long period of time. And I think once you allow the first destabilization to take place, many, many others will die. The question that you then have to ask is, can you say that these norms of comedy all of a sudden become constitutional norms? The textualists will have a fit. Uh, But there are so many things that we do by way of prescription uh, that somebody else might say, look, um, we understand that there really is no federal diversity jurisdiction with respect to corporations. That's all a fiction. But we've done it for 200 years. Let's keep it that. We all realize that it's a complete fiction to have bound delegates to the Electoral Congress. They were supposed to be deliberative bodies and all the rest of that. Can one do that here? My 
guess is that legally you have no idea which way it's going to come out. It'll be close, but I think that that would lose. Uh, but I think, in effect, if you want to create a genuine peril to the United States, you start playing around unilaterally with these things. At the very least, you want to have an overwhelming bipartisan consensus. Think back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. When they broke the filibuster, it was, you know, it was 71 votes for and 29 votes against. And there were a very large number of Republicans who were in with the majority. This is a straight partisan play. It will wreck this country um, if we start to go forward. I think the Democrats are hell-bent for leather. They seem to think that what happened with respect to Amy County Barrett is is the ultimate sin. It's basically standard politics as usual within a framework. They want politics as unusual outside that framework. Um, I beg, plead, and implore people to understand that when you have fragile social connections and you break them, uh, it's Humpty Dumpty. You can't put the egg back together again. All right, fellas. Well, on our way out, speaking of statehood, I have to issue a correction from our last episode. I was pretty sleep deprived in the days right when Kite and Key launched and the brain fog did me in. I said on the last episode, unlike unlike now or all previous shows. Well, I mean, but that's a chemical uh, modification. That's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I said on the last episode that the territory of Wyoming was the first place that women were allowed to vote, which is true. But then I said that Congress made them get rid of it as a term of entering the union. I had transposed two stories in my head. Wyoming, to its credit, was asked to jettison female suffrage, but refused. They said they'd rather wait 100 years than come into the union without their women. It was Utah. Uh, They actually took the franchise away from women. It had been given to them originally in the hopes that it would undermine polygamy. And then it ended up kind of tending in the opposite direction. So Congress took it away about a decade before they got statehood. The federal government effectively tried to demormonize Utah for a while. Oh, yeah. There's an interesting case, actually, about this. Because um, when Utah entered the union, Congress required that it ban polygamy. And the Constitution doesn't say anything about Congress being allowed to add conditions to admission to the union. Yes, and interestingly, la- I think it was last year. I think this Utah- was a great mistake. I, I would have preferred that polygamy <laughs> be required for all new entering states. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that, so that's still on the, the books. Uh, but Utah did decriminalize polygamy last year. So they've, they've gone as yeah. far as they can. And so you could, is- why don't Democrats try to revoke their mission to the union now? You know, that's another way no. to get an advantage. No, I mean, it, it turns out this is actually a very serious kind of issue. Because um, one of the things you say, if you allow gay marriage, you could get rid of the man and the woman in the definition. Why can't you get rid of the one man, one woman and allow seven men to marry four women? Um, There are kind of these movements that are starting to take place. There's also, I'm going to end on this. The tragic element of this is a case called Reynolds against the United States, where essentially what they did is they confiscated property of all Mormons for the practice of polygamy and the freedom of religion clause back in 1878 was not sufficient to defend them. That was the height of American authoritarianism on these kinds of issues. Um, And Utah, of course, has always been the focal point of this. And on that happy note, um, I (laughs) will announce that Troy's wife and my wife, and I think that John's wife are all opposed to polygamy for the three of us. (laughs) Oh, God, I thought you were going to propose a group marriage there. No, 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 no. (laughs) Which might be efficient. Like, the more people in the marriage, the less work I might have. No, no, no. The age gaps are too large for this to work. <laughs> anyway, all right, all right fellas. Well, I uh, anyway, I regret the error and I uh, I blame John. Okay. Good. All right, fellas, that's the show. Thanks as always to the two of you, to our producer Scott Emmergut and to all our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. 
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work, or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. I do not know how much I love thee. Four wow. score and seven. You, that's a different declaration. Oh, what about that's, four that's, scores and seven Italy, years ago? Four score and seven years ago. Oh, that's the, uh, that's the Gettysburg address. I missed that part of it. <laughs> well, same difference. Same difference. Same difference. <laughs>